Welcome to the Cinema Draft Podcast, presented by DraftStream, a discussion show about movies, gaming, and the unexpected cultural detours that color our life. Please enjoy your stay and enjoy the show. Yeah, it's your boy, Wardo Jackson, CEO, founder, creator of the great Cinema Draft and Draft Stream Games, where daily fancy sports meets the movies, and it's your favorite, friendly, Scottish playwright, Mark. What have you got one as well? I've got one. Ah, hey. exchange, yes, what is good, yes. Oh, see, can you see? Oh, say can you see? Yes, yes. How's everything over oh, there? Say can you see? How's everything over there? Well, like to, as you know, I like to put it back in its cage. The American <laughs> flag goes yes, back, uh, and that's going for a hundred thousand dollars <laughs> or pounds. My piece of modern art. It's uh, that's from the Family Dollar, climbing up a, a glass encased thing with an American flag in it, and I think that speaks for our times. Oh, okay, I thought it was a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle. Either way, very cool. And yes, we are back <laughs> in our cage. We are back in our cage, Marty. <laughs> we are All back right. in our cage. <laughs> so our Andy Cohen-inspired Watch What Happens lifestyle drinking game tonight will be the word stage. Every time you hear one of us say this word, take a sip of what you're sipping, because tonight's pod end up covering some of our favorite movies that deal with action taking in or around the boards. The great on stage. All right. Oh, right. That was the memo. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah, oh, so right, right, okay, I just thought you meant like, and it really got me thinking, Um, you know, where action takes place on stage as opposed to off stage. Because you immediately start thinking of all the like Hitchcock movies where everything happens off stage, don't you? Oh, like, I, I mean, no, no, anything to deal with the theater world. Yeah. Okay. Right. Well, that's good. I've got a couple. Okay, good. Good, good, good. All right, so as I like to ask people who come on the podcast these days, since the world is still and even more so a viral dumpster fire, people have been getting sicker and sicker over here. States are shutting down. They should have stayed shut down, but I'm not getting on that soapbox right now. The world's a very bleak and shouty place, so I'm desperate for some good news, Marty. Tell me something good. Oh, boy. <laughs> Can I tell you something, right? I read the memo. You know how you send a memo before the show? Yeah, the rundown, absolutely. You do your preparation, which I like. A little bit. And I was, and I was, I'm not going to lie, I was really struggling. Mm. Um, uh, you know, what's good? Well, okay, okay, I got this jacket. I got myself a winter jacket, right? Yeah. Which we'll put in the screen here, right? And it's oh, the, the, it's by, the, the nice. label is Just Cavalli, right? Um, and I was telling you this, TJ Maxx, TK Maxx. Explain to the viewers, please. So, in the United States of America, you have a shopping uh, chain called TJ Maxx. Yes. In Great Britain, we have a shopping chain that uses the exact same font, and it's called TK Maxx. And that's where I got that jacket. It said £465 on the ticket. I got it for 72. I did my Googling and I think it's really worth about 250 pounds, but that still is a saving 
of around about 180 pounds, give or take. So it's good to know that you can still get a good bargain. It's made of, um, I'm going to put it just one second again. It's um, made of down, inside it's got goose down feathers. That looks really warm, Marty. <laughs> so there is a, um, and just, you know what I like about this? Is this is the Italians, right? See if mm. I can read the, um, there's like a nice little thing written on it. And it says, yes, this garment is filled with real down feathers, washed and sterilized according to Italian law. Do you, oh. I don't know what their, now I don't know what their law is. Their law might even be to piss on the feathers. We don't know. We just know it says it's it's the Italian law. Giving new expression, giving new intentionality to the expression down by law. Exactly. Ah. And that's a good film. Do you know that's a good film? Have you seen Down by Law? I have not. All I know is that it's a very popular expression in hip hop in the 80s and 90s. You know, so-and-so is down by law. Uh, that Well, I'm glad you found yourself a great winter coat. For those of you who are wondering about my background today, uh, I'm not sure if you guys, you guys probably see it. It says hold with little Bitcoin shields today. As we, those of you who know me, I'm a very big fan of cryptocurrency, very big fan of Bitcoin. Bitcoin, I got into it in 2013. Today is passing an all-time high as far as market capitalization, $325 billion with market cap, over $17,000 per Bitcoin right now. It's not too late. Jump on the train if need be. And of course, later on, and for those of you who have been following the CDC, the CD3D project, you know that that is cryptocurrency related. So very big day for crypto. I'm celebrating with my background. Yeah, I still need to read up on it because you got me started and I'm going to invest. I just need to know where I, I know I'm going to read the stuff that you sent. Maybe we'll have a little yeah. chat about that again sometime. I'm going to get in. I, I'm I, gonna think, get I, think I sent you that that uh, that little bit of Bitcoin. I think it went from like thirteen thousand to like seventeen thousand. Hot bit of right. gourd. It's a rocket ship, baby. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. I'm gonna I'm gonna get some. What did they call it? Exposure. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. I'm you gonna know, get some exposure. Just get get Not a little, little get a lot. Just get some. Just get some. <laughs> Excellent. So this is the show with no transitions, no segues. All right. So next segment is what we're watching. And I'm going to share my screen and let you know one of the first things I'm watching. And you can tell me if you've seen this at all. Probably haven't, but it's I know it's a popular show here. I'm not so sure about around the world. But first thing I want to share that I'm watching is Old Reliable, a.k.a. Grey's Anatomy. Are you familiar, Marty? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've seen it. I've seen an episode. <laughs> okay, you've seen an episode. All right, fair enough. In my life, I'm aware that it exists. There you go. Well, you know what? Actually, you're not a guy who watches that much TV, so that I would consider to be a triumph. Uh, but Grey's Anatomy came back for its 17th season premiere. Yes, I said that correctly. Se season 17. The thing is an engine unto itself. It's not stopping. It's just getting better. It came with a very interesting, poignant episode that accurately conveyed the fear, the frustration, and the drama of a hospital being racked by COVID-19. It's set in Seattle, Seattle you know, fictional Seattle Grace Hospital, located somewhere around like Seattle Center. And uh, it's just, I mean, they really did, and these were all like, God, look at 5,800 photos on this thing. I'll never find a current photo. Anyways, they did a really good job, I thought, of getting us into into the new season, acknowledging the realities of, of COVID-19 everywhere. I mean, it is a hospital show. And there are other hospital shows. Another one I watch is called The Good Doctor. I thought the way they 
treated the transition to COVID-19 wasn't nearly as successful. And honestly, I think they felt it too. I was watching the third episode last night and they basically had a, they basically had their star, Freddie Highmore, a Brit come, came on before the show and it said, you know what? We're just going to pretend like this doesn't exist. And this is a vision of how we, this is how we see a vision of our future. Please enjoy. They were just tired of dealing with the masks and the COVID mania and stuff. And you know what? The story was better. So some shows can handle it. Some can't. Gray's, is just, I mean, they are so good at what they do, they can handle it. And this ending, this ending really threw out some catnip for those of us who have been Grey's uh, uh, stalwarts. They brought back McDreamy, spoiler alert. You know, they brought back McDreamy, Patrick Dempsey, whom they killed off because he was a bit of a messy bitch <laughs> somewhere around season 10. And it was it was emotional. It was dramatic. It led, you know, trending Twitter on on a Thursday night, and from what we can indicate, what, what we've seen, it seems like they're going to bring back a lot of the old regulars. So it's going to be a great season for Grey's Anatomy. That was one of the things I am watching. And the other thing I'm watching, I'm sure you might have some thoughts on this, Marty, is of course the Crown. So I'm gonna give you, I'm gonna give you a moment to to, to, to go off because I'm sure, as like most you know British subjects, the you know, royal subjects, you are not a fan of the Crown. <laughs> well, I've, you know, as you know. Uh, I don't have a television, uh, and I uh, watch a lot of films, right? Sure. But so here's here's get look. There will always be room to commission historical period costume dramas where the cast will be predominantly middle class. For your American listeners, middle class in Britain is not the same as middle class in America, okay? In the United States of America, where they've been trying to erase the working class for ages, what they've done is they sort of lowered the boundary for middle class. Where really, a lot of people who are a working class in America would be defined as middle class, the lower sort of middle class, right? So, but in Britain, the middle class is something else. You're more likely to be uh, privately educated, um, you know, have an RP accent, read the Daily Mail, the Telegraph, the Times, the whatever, the Guardian. You know, you might have some liberal tendencies, but you'll, you know, by and large be a bit of an arse, in my opinion, in my humble opinion, okay? okay. Those people run the arts. They've always run the arts, they, so they commission for themselves, yeah, because it's what they know, it's what they understand. So there will always be room for something that goes back 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, and shows the political classes, the middle classes, and the upper classes doing their thing, yeah? Now, obviously, as a revolutionary, I want most of these people erased, so my opinions on it would always be, you know, based on the fact that these are people that I loathe with a passion. Uh, I, you know, so um, a story like this, it really holds very little interest for me unless they make a film out of it and it's got some really good people in it. Um, so, like, you know, when you were talking about Mrs. Thatcher, there was... Um, Off camera, yes. <clears throat> Meryl, yeah, Meryl Streep played her in a movie. Iron Lady, yeah. great. Iron film. Lady, and I think she won the Oscar. She did, she did. She did. Uh, and then after, I think, Helen Mirren won an Oscar for playing the Queen. And I thought both of those films are actually pretty good. So I tend to get on board when it's a film, but not when it's television and you're wanting more than an hour or more two of my life. Uh, but, but all right, so you, you said you liked um, the, the Queen, the one that Helen Mirren won for, right? Yeah. Well, fancy that. Turns out the same guy who did the Queen is executive producer and showrunner for The Crown. And he writes Peter Morgan. He is, and that's why the show is such a phenomenon because 
It is excellent. It is out. I mean, outside of maybe House of Cards, this is probably the most expensive, the flashiest uh, production that Netflix tends to put on. Uh, the Crown, yeah, the Peter Morgan does the Crown. He's I get a bit of an avowed loyalist, what a royalist, or whatever, which is fine. Um, I mean, for Americans, obviously, it's going to hold more fascination to us than you guys. You guys live with that bullshit, but because he is so good at writing stuff about you know uh, royalty, I think he also did Frost Nixon, didn't he? He's did he do Frost Nixon. Yeah, I mean, he's yeah, done he, some uh, decent stuff. I mean, not yeah. too much. He did the Last King of Scotland. Yeah, he did the special relationship. Like he's Worker got his Oscar for that. Yeah, the other boy. I mean, he's he's a really good writer and stuff, and so he does just about every episode of The Crown, and it shows. I mean, it's. I, I mean, I'm not gonna try to over convince you to watch The Crown because you have to live with that nonsense. But I think it's really. It, I mean, it's a really good job as far as uh, bringing you inside the drama. Like, I didn't get it as as an American. I always thought The Crown is silly. I still think The Crown is kind of silly. You know, monarchs, all that stuff. It is silly. It's flipping. It, stupid, it's silly. Man. It's silly. But for as as it's it's, it's, it's even more since it's harmful. No, I I, I don't doubt that at, uh, at all. I mean, they're they're basically what they call them in the first season. The uh, uh, freeloaders off the state you know i mean they're basically they're basically our our, our version of secretary of state but with like land and money and and it's it's ridiculous but what it is good as a writer and i know you're you're an accomplished playwright and lover of the the arts it's it, it's excellent like screenwriting and and they really do mind the drama inside that family because there is a lot of drama to be had i mean their lives honestly have no have very little average working day person import per se but as far as like you know a closed in a closed world or environment of, of drama it's very good and one thing i'm all about in in a lot of stuff that i watch is take me to a world i know nothing about take me into a new world drop me in there give me tons of jargon give me tons of, tons of customs i'm not used to let me learn something you know while i'm being entertained and i really i really do you know enjoy watching the crown for that and this season is just it's just really it's best one. Josh O'Connor is Prince Charles. Now, so they did a great job in season three of setting up Charles to be shockingly a bit of a, a, a bit of a sympathetic figure. Cause you know, all I knew about Prince Charles is that this is the dickhead who cheated on Diana and always seemed like he's unhappy. And he's just a bit of a, as you guys would say, a ponce. And no, you wouldn't say ponce. Ponce is becoming something else actually. Oh, okay. What would I, what would I call well, yeah, it? Yeah. Ponce is, Ponce is now getting more used. I mean, it always was, but uh, Ponce Hotel is getting more directed towards uh, people that fiddle with children. Oh, oh, no, 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 no. That would be Andrew. <laughs> oh, wait a minute, that's nonce. Sorry, that's nonce. I get my nonces and my ponces mixed up. Sorry. Yeah, okay, no. Well, no, they, they kind of do allude a little bit to you. They introduced Prince Andrew in, uh, I think, uh, episode four. And it's funny because it's like, you can see a little bit of the perviness. They kind of give him just a little bit of the perviness as a, as a youngster to know that he's going to be an issue. He's going to be a problem later on. <laughs> but yes, yeah, so when Prince Andrew gets introduced this season, and of course, Diana, Diana sucks at all the oxygen in the room. Oh, and, and Jillian, we'll get back to Jillian Anderson in a second. Diana, uh, Emma Corn's Diana is just pitch perfect. She she gets the shyness and, and then the head down. Yeah, and always in in kind of the little smirking, you know, whatever. But you can see also that she's she's not like just some little, you know, just some some young girl who doesn't know anything. She can tell that she's she's got a little bit of game herself. Like she wants the she wants to meet, you know, Charles. She wants to get into with Charles as much as as Charles wants to cover for his relation with Camilla. It's wild. All I'm saying is that y'all need to watch this, if for nothing else, Jillian Anderson who now is probably more Brit than American. She's so fucking good as Margaret Thatcher. And not just because they humanize her some, which I didn't think was possible, but because 
her Margaret Thatcher, I mean, the, the way she, she nails like her, her speech and cases, it's creepy. It was creeping me out. I mean, I was watching some some old uh, YouTubes of Margaret Thatcher, then I, then I go watch an episode of The Crown, and it, it would just freak me out how good she is, Margaret Thatcher. And as much as you, I mean, and it does really kind of give a stinging rebuke to conservatism, especially in episode five, where this uh, this infamous painter decorator breaks into Buckingham Palace and gives himself an audience with the Queen, and basically just kind of you know just basically unloads on how, you know, the, and I'm not sure if that part of the conversation actually happened, but it basically unloads on how unfair, you know, you know, Britain's become, how there's, you know, lack of, of, of social safety nets and, and basically, you know, civility and people caring about each other. And I thought that was an awesome stinging rebuke of conservatism, which, you know, honestly made the season worth watching. So the crown season four, I'm loving it. Definitely check it out. If you are so inclined and Olivia Coleman is the queen. Just so, who is Billy Joel? <laughs> she's just so, she's just so perfectly aristocratic and closed off. And Olivia Coleman, man, give her another Emmy. She's she's perfect. Ah, the crap. That's what I'm watching, Marty. What are nice. you? Nice. Funnily enough, do you know what I watched yesterday or the day before? Things are a bit groggy at the minute, but I watched uh, Us, Jordan Peele. Oh, tell do tell. What do you think of that? Right. So I'm going to watch it again. Fairly close, you know, like I watched it maybe a, a day and a half ago. My days are blurry because my sleep pattern's blurry because obviously I'm, I'm taking all these like painkillers. So, but it's within the last 48 hours that I watched it and I watched some theories about it after I'd seen it. I deliberately knew nothing beyond like, you know, the basic reviews going in and I meant to watch it sooner, but I just didn't get around to it. Uh, well, I am um, because it doesn't make any sense if you watch it too closely. <laughs> well, I don't know. Um, I really like it, and I like you see. I watched it back to back with a film which we'll come to later called Burning. So don't 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 sort of go on to Burning, but okay. because I watched the two of these films that you have to watch more than once that are fairly uh, dense. You know what I mean? Like you have to sort of do a bit of like reading and read films and know that you're not going to get everything first time round. So the two films have kind of blurred into one experience because there's things about class in both, yeah? And I always like the way that people make films where class is a theme and they still have to make the film in such a way that people are going to want to go and see it who are outside of that demographic, you get what I mean? Right. So, like, you know, how do you get white middle and upper middle class people to go and see you know, horror film or, you know, horror thriller that's essentially, like, you know, a, a black film about black issues, in my opinion, right? Mm -hmm. oh, amongst other things. And, and and he does it really, really well. And I actually, I preferred this to Get Out oh. because I know that, yeah, because I'm going to have to watch this again. I'm going to have to pay more attention. And this is, uh, this is almost like a film you would expect to either be your first film or your third or fourth or fifth, you know, where there's less pressure. To make this your second film's really pretty cool. So you um, chances here, huh? Oh, big time. Yeah. Oh, yeah, 100%. Because I remember watching, like, a bit the Joe Budden, I think it was the Joe Budden podcast, <laughs> and they were talking about this film, and they didn't really get it. Right. And I knew, but I'd, I'd, I'd read a couple of things before that, that it's just, it's, it's not as in your face as a genre piece. You know, you really do need to figure some stuff out. Um, no, I really, 
I love films that make you work. I really do. I love, and I love films that are about class, but are about other things on top of that. Yeah, mm. and and that they're they're not hammering your head with like you know, a lot of people make films that are kind of like overtly liberal and they're made by rich people about poor people things. Yeah. And it's just, you know, I've got no time for those films really because they're just really oversimplified and they reduce the experience. Yeah. Mm. Whereas, and those are films made from the inside, sorry, the outside looking in. But when you make a film from the inside, just looking, not necessarily looking out, just looking. That's when you get other things. It's the difference between a like a British director called Shane Meadows, who makes films about working class stuff, um, and then you have another filmmaker. Oh, his name escapes me. I always forget him for some reason, even though um, uh, he directed Cares and various other things. And I use his name anyway. He's always coming from the sort of middle class view, looking in at poverty and isn't poverty terrible, right? Mm -hmm. And all the struggles. Whereas Shane Meadows, he makes genre films, he makes slasher films, but they're work it's a working class milieu. So he gets all the stuff in without having to sort of slap you in the face with uh, sort of, you know, Marxist theory or whatever. And I think <laughs> Jordan Peele, Jordan Peele's very similar in that, you know, these are films. The, the very fact that it's a horror film and the characters are black, it's a big deal, yeah? Yeah. Even the very fact that they go on a holiday home. They got a holiday home. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. These are not poor, these are not poor people from, from the hood, the ghetto, yeah? Mm. So he's done something else as well, yeah? So, yeah, man, uh, I'm going to have to watch it again. Uh, I love it. I love, I love, I love things like, like the Jaws T-shirt. People are wearing black flag T-shirts, you yeah. know? yeah. There's just an awful lot of Easter eggs, yeah. There's a lot of Easter eggs. Well, and, yeah, now, now for that, I would probably say it's probably worth a second viewing. I'm not a big horror fan, so I only saw it the one time in the theater. But I thought it was, I thought it was great. I thought I still prefer Get Out myself, but I thought it was great. I saw largely what he's trying to do, and it's and the whole like tether uh, thing. I mean, I actually, you know, I, I have uh, a guest on the podcast a couple times. Uh, KSK, who I call her like my pop cultural tether, because you know, it's, it's wild having this idea that there might be another person out there that kind of mirrors you, whatever. It's like a mirror opposite of you, whatever, that has, you know, basically it's almost like you're split at birth, whatever. That whole kind of idea is, is, is fairly wild that they're just kind of lurking on the other side. It's almost like what is, it's almost like thinking about like, you know, having like an alter ego that exists, you know, having a, a, a separate personality and what, what would happen if they actually gave them light, you know? Ooh, yeah, it's wild. <laughs> Yeah. So yeah, the, the guy's name I was thinking of was Ken Loach. Ken Loach is a really famous. Oh yeah, character. yeah. We covered him when uh, when we did the the top five Scottish films, right? Yeah, and, and Ken Loach is really really good. Uh, but he's always coming at it from a sociological point of view. You know, it's never not there. Whereas I like a film like uh, if you ever want to see a film, Dead Man Walking is a very good film. That's this a is in. Pardon? That's the Susan Sarandon one with uh, Sean Penn? Was that dead? No, no, no. Dead. Sorry, no. Dead Man's Shoes. Sorry. Dead Man's Shoes. Yeah. It's a slasher film. It's a slasher film kind of thing with a body count. It's a revenge film. So it's got yeah, all the genre. I think it's, I'm in. <laughs> I it love sticks. To, yeah, you'll love it. 
it sticks to all the genre elements, but all the characters are working class. So you go inside working class houses, you listen to working class people talk, and they drive cars, and they listen to music, and they have a world experience, yeah, that that is rich. Whereas a lot of the time when, you, when we're dealing with sort of like, you know, the working class milieu, it's kind of, it's reduced, yeah, to sort of like, oh, you wouldn't want to live here, or oh my God, isn't this, oh, oh, thank Christ, we, we don't have to live in a council estate and all that nonsense, man, you know? Um, well, tell me about film. You said you, were, you saw Burning as well? Burning, yeah. So Burning is just this amazing Korean film. Oh, and cool. been meaning to watch it for a while, and I got hold of it. And yeah, it, 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 definitely it, tell oh, me about it, because I've got thoughts on Burning, too. And you'll, then you Have you seen it? Have you seen it? I have seen it. And I definitely watched it the wrong way because I did not get nearly enough out of it as everyone else did. So, so please go ahead. Tell me what tell me what you liked about Burning and, and everything, and I'll tell you what. Again, again, Burning is a film. So, like, whilst I am not old enough to be of that uh, era, the films of the, the late sixties and the seventies are a huge kind of thing for me. Where you you know where narrative is not played out in this most obvious three-act Sid Field, you know what you're going to get exactly when you get it kind of thing, right? Mm -hmm. So I like the movies of the 70s, and they're a good breeding ground, you know, for having a sensibility where you can watch films like Burning and go, right, okay, I, I don't know what to expect. I don't know if I'm going to get all the, uh, you know, everything's going to be dished out to me in the way that you would expect a normal pies and peas uh, you know, American genre film or a flick, if you will. And so I, I knew that this wasn't going to be that. And so you're kind of like, right, where's the story? And the story, like, it's pretty obvious. You know, so, and, and, and it, it seems quite a simple story. You know, there's a guy and he kind of, you know, fancies this girl and they kind of get together. And then uh, she tells him that she's leaving uh, to go traveling, I believe, somewhere in Africa. She's going to find herself. Mm -hmm. And, uh, He's going to look after and feed the cat. Um, and he does, but he never sees the cat. You notice that? He never sees the cat. Yeah, yeah. Right? Anyway, he goes to meet her at the airport when she gets back, and she's there with another guy who she met whilst traveling. And this guy is an upper-middle-class guy. He is from the upper classes. He's got money, okay? And so our kind of hero, he's a little bit feeling like, well, he's been sidelined, doesn't he? He's been friend-zoned. But he still kind of hangs around with them from time to time. And um, she goes missing. She just doesn't show up one day. And he thinks that maybe, you know, this other guy's done it. You know what I mean? <laughs> this, this other guy, he's got a thing where he likes to burn greenhouses once every couple of months. He finds a greenhouse that nobody does anything with, and he sets it on fire. That's what he says. Right. The greenhouse might not be a literal thing. And that's what I totally movie. missed. <laughs> Pardon? And that's what I totally missed. I totally missed that. Right. I, because I was watching this on the Stairmaster in, in, in like three separate chunks, so I it's not the ideal way to watch this film. It's not. No, no, it's not. There's a lot of metaphors and allegories, and there's a lot of things that um, you maybe take on face value that aren't actually. That's beautiful. Uh, like the, the 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 burning aspect of it. Some I have I've read that the greenhouse is 
it's not a real greenhouse, yeah? So, because in, in the film, the character goes running around the neighbourhood and tries to find a greenhouse he thinks might be getting set on fire. Or, you know, because the guy says he's going he's gonna to set one on fire. The, the sort of rival man says that he's going to set a greenhouse on fire in the neighbourhood where the hero is from. So the hero kind of goes jogging every morning trying to find these, like, local neighbouring greenhouses to see if um, any of them being set on fire, and they haven't. And I later read earlier today that the greenhouse, it's not a greenhouse, it's something else. He means something else when he says that he looks for greenhouses that no one's well, well, doing Rick, anything. Well, let's just spoil this. Let's just do a quick, you know, cultural cul-de-sac into this, into this film, because part of the reason I didn't get all of this is that, well, I, I just didn't get all of this. And, and for, for those of you who haven't seen Burning, I guess go watch it. We're about to spoil the shit out of it now, so you've been warned. But yeah, so... So yeah, in, apparently the burning greenhouse things means he's going to do a murder or something. He's going to murder somebody. Yeah, yeah, it's a person. And I had, I mean, I remember once once I got done with the film and I'm on Stairmaster back when I could Stairmaster at the freaking YMCA. <laughs> uh, I just I would felt so unfulfilled. I'm like, this is what everyone's talking about. I go to a message board, uh, actually the where I met my fellow Bransky slackers. I go to a message board on uh, on Facebook, and I'm like, so can someone explain to me like I'm five why everyone thinks burning is great? I didn't cast person on. I honestly wanted feedback, and and then people had to lay out for me this entire film that I had missed, mostly because I had been just watching this thing on the Stairmaster. I wasn't paying, I mean, I was, I mean, I was trapped. I wasn't paying attention, but on a small screen and you're sweating and you're, you know, I mean, and it just, it's just different. So you need to see this thing sitting down, fully focused, phone down or off or whatever, and to try to catch all this stuff because I missed all of that, you know, uh, subtext. I just thought it was a very kind of slow, drawn out, beautifully shot film, with a you know fairly unlikable you know protagonist to an extent, and I just didn't understand like why this guy was just you know was just like this way. It was very it was very disconcerting. I didn't understand why everyone loved it, and I had to have people explain to me. I don't say I don't think I feel like a dummy per se, but I feel like I could have watched it in a more intelligent manner. <laughs> no, I agree, and I, I would say honestly, I rec I, 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 I recommend the film I, I, in days like these where we. Films are so cookie cutter, right? And I long for the days of films that challenge you. I want to be challenged, yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I want it. That's why I loved um, Us and I loved it more than I loved Get Out because you know, Get Out's one of those where there's going to be some twists and there's going to be some turns and there's going to be some jumps, but they're going to exist within the length of the film. And by the time you get to the end of the film, you know where you are. And yeah, you can go back and go, oh yeah, I missed that little bit. You know what I mean? You can go back. It's worth rewatching. I've watched. Uh, yeah, no, I know. I've but that's not the point I'm making. That's not the point. The point I'm making is the difference between watching a film that you can go back and go, oh yeah, I missed that, I missed that. But it's nothing existential. It's not to do with you as a person. You understand? Where, where you missed something partly because of who you are. Yeah. Not because you missed that bit where the character said something, you know, that we can all get. We can all go back. It's like the usual suspects, yeah? You can go back on the usual suspects and you'll get everything you're meant to get. But when you get to films like, say, Us and Burning, well, you need to go back. You, the person, has to go back. You, the person, has to go back and think about things. And God Almighty, it's the one thing we do 
the least of these days is we deep we just don't think deeply enough yeah right. uh, to the point you know and and a film that demands that you think deeply and question things that you may or may not believe about how you watch a film because there's a whole bunch of rules that we're all aware of when it comes to cinema yeah you know um like i was watching actually a commentary about a little bit of us where there's a character who is injured but not killed or is we think the character is dead but that character is left behind so that when we go back a few minutes later we can get a jump do you know what I mean? Like, just so literally, because if the character was dead, the character can't, like, not be dead and then try and, like, jump or grab somebody and then we, the audience, get a fright. So that when we're watching horror films and characters turn out not to be dead, we don't get pissed off. We just realise it's a fucking short... It's just a thing. It's just a thing that a lot of people have to do in horror films, yeah? Well, we know all that. So it's great to have to go and do some other things, yeah? To do some other things that, you know... It's kind of like, you know, I'm a big fan of Michelangelo Antonioni. And Jesus Christ, I watch those films over and over and over again and I get more and more and more from them. Because if you just leave them on first viewing, you'll get nothing. But the more I change, the more I can receive what the great artist meant for me to receive. And that's a rare thing these days. Hence another reason why I'm, I'm picky with my TV. I'm picky with my films. Amen. And on that note, we're going to non-segue into the next segment, which, nice. is our, which is the topic of this podcast. Top five theater movies. Now, the rules are like such. One of us names a movie that takes place or deals with in the world of the theater. We alternate picks. Once someone picks a movie, that movie is out of play. As always, guests go first while I start to construct my list because I did not do my own homework. <laughs> I didn't do mine either. Ah, I misread. Is... I misread the memo. But this should be. But I'm going to go with the first one. Well, obviously, I'm going to go with one that you might pick, so I'm going to pick it first, right? Oh, Game theory, and, right. and that is Birdman. Oh, I did not get that far, but that's an excellent pick. And actually, let me start sharing screen tier. And of course, Birdman. A lot of people have got a problem with Birdman, and I get it because of the way that it was shot and this and that. But look, it's it amazing. Like for best picture, didn't it? Yeah, but still, people still had issues. Hmm. I love the acting. It's got some of my favorite actors in it. Okay. Okay. So. You know, I'm always who we got. We've got Michael Keaton, Edward Norton, who I'm a big fan of. Naomi Watts is in it. Um, we've got one of my favorite Amy's. Um, there's a lot of Amy's that I like, and I get their. Is it Amy Ryan who's in it? Who plays. Um, is that Amy? Yeah, that is Amy Ryan. I love Amy Ryan. Yeah, yeah, I love Amy Ryan. We've also got who else is in it? Um, there's a few other actors that are in it. Let me see. Yeah, let's just read. I'll go back that one to the credits. Yeah, Emma Stone. Yeah, Naomi Watts, Emma Stone, Edward Norton, Michael Keaton. So some really good actors in there. Um, and I just really liked the fact that they were doing a, a, an adaptation of a Raymond Carver story. Yeah, I'm a big Raymond Carver fan. He is one of the few writers that I really thought, again, wrote about ordinary working class life, just ordinary stuff. Um, and um, I just so I loved the fact that they were basing it on some of his work. And I just thought the acting was amazing. And, you know, I, I thought it was a great movie. I really did. I, I, I saw it at the cinema 
And it just blew me away. All right. And well, I love New York. I love New York. You know when he's, he's walking the streets of the theater district, yeah. yeah? You get from the stage door to the front door and all that. I love all that stuff, man. <laughs> yeah, that's that shot there. I love that. Oh. Uh, that's a good pick. Um, my my first pick, and this one is super obvious, I'm definitely taking it off the board, is Shakespeare in Love. People, I mean, people dunk on this movie. I don't know why. It's perfectly delightful. I enjoy it every time I watch it. I, I can see you silent, Marty. I can see you, like, judging me. I don't care. I enjoy it. No, 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 no. I mean, look, it is what it is. It's, it's fine. You know, <laughs> I love, oh, who's the guy? There's a writer who's, because there's other writers in the thing. Uh, it's the guy that wrote, is it The White Devil or something like that? There's a writer, playwright, who's in it, and he writes, in real in real life, he wrote, like, really, really violent plays. And he's, like, the little cockney boy. He's the little cockney boy who gets a couple of lines in the movie, and uh, he, he's, oh, a lot of violent bits or something like that. I can't see the guy. Do what The White Devil. Is it The White Devil's play? I'm going to have to Google it. But, you know, I've got no problem with that. The White is it the white devils? Well, while you love white devil, I enjoy, I enjoy oh, John Webster. That's right. John Webster. John Webster. Yeah. So there's a little next time you watch it, pay attention for the little kid who really likes the violence that uh, is in the plays, and he is the young kid playing the playwright John Webster, who oh, wrote yeah. violent oh, plays. Yeah. Right. They made a big like, deal of him too, looking all you know. Yes, exactly. I like John Webster. Big fan. Anyway, yeah, so that's a good one. Yeah, I, I enjoy it. I, I, every time I watch that movie, I, I have fun. And it, it's definitely peak Gwyneth Paltrow. Like, I mean, she, I mean, I don't know if she gets much better. Well, I mean, it's, it's kind of sad to say, oh, someone peaked when she was like 25, 26, whatever. But she was really good in this. I enjoyed it. And it was a lot of fun. I, I enjoy Shakespeare in Love. Sue me. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. So I'm going to come in now with one that I'm not sure you're going to get. But it's a great movie. It's called The Dresser. Oh, Okay. You tell. The dresser is uh, Tom Courtney and Albert Finney. And Albert Finney plays an actor who is the sort of the leading man of the theatre company. Okay. And he is putting on, he's getting on in years, and he is putting on, or they're putting on King Lear. And uh, his faithful servant stroke, you know, like it's one of them. It's almost like a, a man and it's a master and servant type dynamic is his dresser played by Tom Courtney, uh, one of the greatest British actors of all time, fantastic actor. Uh, he was Billy Liar in Billy Liar, a great British film. So um, Tom Courtney plays his faithful servant, really, who's been dressing him uh, as he gets ready for the stage, have a little drink, uh, all these years. And he's the only one that really knows him. And obviously, like all master-servant relationships, the master is abusive to the servant. Um, and, and uh, you know, we think that he kind of loves him too. Uh, it's a really good film. Um, it should have won Oscars. I'm not, it might have got some nominations for Oscars kicking around somewhere. But, like, for just great acting, it's one of the best King Lears that you'll ever see. Oh. King Lear, yeah, 100%, absolutely. Um, Finney's King Lear is the best King Lear I've seen. And I've seen a few. <laughs> okay. And um, it's it's a very sad 
film that deals with aging. So, for example, um, in, in, in scenes where the actor has to pick up a woman, yeah, you know, you're, the, 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 the king has to pick up a woman, King Lear, right? right? But as he gets older, as he gets older, his back is getting sorer. So with each year that he need, he's going to be playing the part of King Lear, he needs a lighter Cordelia or a light, you know, the, the women that play the daughters, they need to be lighter, yeah? Because <laughs> he literally just can't lift them anymore. It's the little <laughs> things like that. It's about a man hanging on to his talent, really, whilst, you know, trying not to die, I guess. is you know, time, just time and tight, wait for no man or woman. Okay. But it's a great film. Anyway, that's me. The good director. Dresser. All right, that's a good film. Uh, my next one's going to be Black Swan. L.A., theater adjacent, same thing. And that one, <laughs> I mean, it's dark. It's kind of twisty. It's good now. Natalie Portman, uh, I think she might have got nominated for this one. Now. She got an Oscar. Oh, she won it. Oh, wow. Okay, my bad. Uh, yeah, so she won an Oscar for this role and where she plays, you know, part of like a competing uh, ballerina uh, duo. Like they're, you know, a, a, a star and understudy and the psychological games they're playing with each other, you know, competing for the top spot. And it's very dark and weird. And and Darren Aronofsky, I believe, is the director behind this. And yes, yeah, yeah. It's a good film. It's a pretty good film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, look at the eyes, and just I mean, just really weird shit. Like, like it starts in the world as we know, it, but he definitely plays with like, with, with like the the camera and stuff to make it seem like is she seeing things? Are we seeing things? You know, it's not it's not a straight you know totally you know, realistic. Uh, but, but he doesn't do that. Aronofsky doesn't really do realism, nor should he. You know what I mean? He's he's always fair enough, fair enough. blurring yeah. that line which I think is a good thing. Um, it's not my favourite performance of Natalie Portman's, but it's still really good. It's not my favourite Aronof Aronofsky film, by the way. Um, right. I think uh, Requiem for a Dream. And, you know, I'm still too scared to watch that. I need to, I know I need to watch, but I'm too, still too scared because I hear it's just, like, gross and, and super... Do you tough. know what it is? Can I tell you, right, right? Okay, so, look, can I tell you how much I love that movie? I love it that much that what I'm using is uh, for a mouse mat is this. Look, can you see it? Yeah. Ah, <laughs> oh, shit. Now By it's going to be a lot No, look. Here's the thing. Look, if you understand the work of Hubert Selby Jr., you will realize that there is redemption and there is something. There is, a lot of people talk about this thing where when you get like extreme art, art that maybe transgresses or takes you to a certain place, they talk about how there's like a redemptive quality. There can be a redemptive quality, Okay. The only artist that I would – okay, two. I'm going to give you two that I would go, yeah, definitely when it comes to them is Hubert Selby Jr. and Ingmar Bergman, okay? I can watch the heaviest Ingmar Bergman film about the heaviest shit and still feel some kind of satisfaction and redemptive quality that I've been through at the end, right, okay? The Requiem for a Dream is that film, Okay. The one thing to remember about that film, if you follow it with the music, what I mean by that is he very specifically punctuates uh, certain scenes or he, he doesn't even punctuate them. He kind of like, he lets this music flow into it. That's uh, beautiful music by the Brodsky Quartet. But there is a theme for the dream, yeah? 
and the dream. Now, the movie is Song for the Death of a Dream, okay? okay? Now, there is something beautiful in singing that song for the death of a dream. So that even as you get to the bloodiest, most horrific stuff, that music still plays in parts. And it makes you, there's something beautiful about these people who are holding out for a dream that's almost about to die. You get what I mean? There's something beautiful about that. And that film's got it. Hubert Selby Jr.'s got it. I didn't feel it so much in Black Swan. Uh, Bergman's got it. Um, and that's why you shouldn't be afraid of the film. For me, the film gets easier and easier to watch every time I see it, not because the action gets any less horrific. It's because I'm seeing it as a piece of art that is called Requiem for a Dream. And Requiem is the song is the song for the dead. Okay. And the, so there's the musicality in the very title. Anyway, let's move on. <laughs> All right. So what's your next film then? So uh, uh, my next film, uh, which I um, it's coming to me. It's coming to me. Oh God, I forgot. Okay, I'm going to go Stage Door, which is uh, Alfred Hitchcock. Yeah, and it, okay. look, it's, just, it's 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 one of Hitchcock's lesser films, um, and it's a murder mystery, but okay. it's set around a theater, and um, I'm a huge fan of the sort of. Um, the less celebrated works of Alfred Hitchcock. Oh, hold on. And, um, hold on. Give me a yeah, second. Yeah, because it's all there. Hold on. It's a stage door. There's several stage doors. Hold on. One second. Let me see if I can find the right one. Do you know what year it was? Was it 43? No, that stage door contained four. Oh, 39. Yeah. yeah, there we go. There we go. No, that's not it. Uh, was it 1930? He said it was Hitchcock, right? Yeah, I'm pretty sure there's a Hitchcock one that involves a theater, man. And uh, I was, and that's the one that I'm going to go for. Oh, okay. Um uh, yeah, the stage. Let me just see. Is it just, yeah, let's go down. Uh, stage fright. That's it. Stage, stage fright. Yeah, okay. I knew it had stage in the title. <laughs> so yeah, stage fright. A struggling actress tries to help a friend prove his innocence when he's and it's the standard Hitchcock tropes of you know somebody is wrongfully accused of something and everything is geared up for them you know to get done even though we know they're innocent and it just. It's Hitchcock, not even slumming it. Because I think bad Hitchcock is better than good everybody else. Near nah, enough. Fair enough. Yeah, like seriously, like, you know, Hitchcock gets better and better and better. He really does. Um, and Marlena Dietrich is in it, which is always a lot of fun. Because uh, I never see her in, in enough stuff. Do you know what I mean? Oh, um, she's, she's, she's a good actress. But yeah, no, it, 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 it's my sister's got this on a an Alfred Hitchcock um, DVD box set. And it's almost like the little one that's the least known film in the box set. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. So I made sure it was the first one that I watched. I love it. It's a very good film. You just can't go wrong. You can probably get it on YouTube or various places for nothing. Eh? But yeah, Stage Door, that's a good one. I'm going to try and remember the one that I'm trying to remember. Okay. Uh, and, yeah, that, That's a good one. I'm going to go with... Well, you, eh, all right, this might be uh, okay. No, I won't stretch it. Let's just do uh, this one. Also, fairly obvious in the title, "Bullets Over Broadway." I barely remember this film. Oh, I, might, yeah. I mean, and people think that it's like Woody Allen's last great film, <laughs> uh, but you know, it's, it's not. It's not. Trust me, it's not. No, no, no. And no, no. I know it's not because I saw Match Point after. And I, I love Match Point. I thought it was. Oh great. my god! Terrible film. What? 
Oh, all right. Terrible, right. Sidebar, terrible Zach, why did you not like Match Point? All right, so Bullets Over Broadway and Lodging My... my <laughs> but let's talk Match Point real quick. What the fuck, Marty? Come on. Seriously? Why don't you like Match Point? God, I just... Can I tell you something? I like tennis, but I hate the fact it's so bloody middle class. Look, <laughs> your listeners, you get sick of Class is everything to me. It's bloody Barely. everything to me. Yes. Why the hell is a sport that's a bat and ball sport? It's a bat, bat and ball sport should be cheap, right? Should yep. be anybody getting so just the minute that we're doing a film about Wimbledon and tennis, we're just getting into class, yeah. And and Woody Allen is, you know, his heyday, good about a whole lot of things, but look, he's stuck to a certain social class. Sure, and I don't sure. mind everybody knows. And I don't mind when it's Americans and it's, you know, the socialite, upper Manhattanites and all that kind of stuff. People that I don't know and I don't, I'll never meet. But he brought but his brand of bullshit over to Britain and you're like, fuck that. Oh, kill them all! Kill them all! <laughs> I, just want, I want everybody dead. I just want every single person in the film dead. Look at Matthew Good. Looks the same, man. You know, and Scarlet too. I mean, this is like, what, 15 years ago? They look great. Everyone looks great. Everyone looks great. Yeah, I, 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 yeah. I, I mean, I think about Woody Allen. I had this, I had this discussion in in the Brancy Slack. Call out the Brancy Slackers. Uh, we had this in one of our channels about how um, how uh, some of us didn't like the some of the people of color did not like um, or or didn't love Sofia Coppola's new movie, um, uh, the the one with uh, Bill Murray as Rashida Jones' father. Uh, what was the name of it? Uh, it'll come to me. Anyways, they, they didn't like it. I loved it. I was in for the ride. And they're like, yeah, well, there's this whole thing with the traffic stop. And Bill Murray, you know, gets you know stopped by the cops. And he talks his way out of it. That would have gone totally differently if it was a black man. I'm like, yeah, I get it. Sure. And and that's and, – and but I don't go to Sofia Coppola movies expecting to see any kind of real representation of black people in it. I'm, I don't go for that. I'm going there for, you know – uh, for you know, small wit, upper middle class lives, upper class lives, whatever you know. I'm, you know, she has her lane, and I respect it. I, I mean, and this is one of those, these type of films where it's not even sort of like it dropped me into a world per se. Although it did take me to Britain, I wasn't very exposed to, to much British stuff back in 2004. But I, I did appreciate being taken to, to, to Britain, taken to you know, uh, to the I guess the circle of kind of society types who. Who pay people to be tennis coaches? Like that shit was like totally over my head, and I just and I just thought the the plotting was was pretty good. Like everyone there has something to hide. Everyone there is is kind of you know creepy or have alternative motives, and just some weird shit goes down. And it was just a it was just an interesting story, well told. I I mean, look, if I went to every, I'm not saying that you know you do this per se, but if I went into every piece of entertainment expecting to see myself. Like say the crown, which you could probably count on your one on one hand how many black people are in that fucking thing. I mean, you know, I'll I will you know lose like maybe you know seventy five percent of the stuff that's actually out there to watch. You know, some of which is actually good. So no, I, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. But I guess when it comes to Woody Allen, I already go in backburnering. You know, you know, knowing knowing myself that knowing that my experience isn't going to be centered. I just want to see if you can tell me a good story. And I thought Match Point was a good story. That's it. We disagree. All right, uh, fair enough. <laughs> All right, so off match point. You, fair, you're absolutely right. If 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 the story and the acting and everything's good, you just put everything else away, don't you? You put all your your prejudices, you know, your real life prejudices away. I didn't do that with this one. I just didn't. Not with match point. But no, I've got another fair. one. I've got. Yeah, no, yeah. What, what's your what's your new what's your next film? Barton Fink. 
And they were trying to put on a play, right? They're trying to finance a play in Barton Fink? It starts off, Barton Fink has just put on a play on Broadway, and mm. it's opening night, goes down a storm. It's going to get great reviews. So he, his agent gives him uh, you know, a meeting and gets, you know, basically says that Capital Pictures over in uh, Hollywood, they want him. They are mm. looking for the Barton Fink feeling. Not only that, they're going to pay him good money to write a Wallace Beery wrestling pick. <laughs> and he gets writer's block. I love, do you know, I went to see this film. It's one of the few times that I went to the cinema with other people. And there was this woman that I went with, okay? And uh, she, was a, she was a friend of a friend. And when we came out of the cinema after seeing Barton Fink, I said, what was that about? And she nailed it. And I can't remember a word of what she said, except that she nailed it. And if I ever met her again, I just want to know, tell me what you told me those years ago about what Barton Fink was all about. I love it. It's one of my favorite films of all time. I never get sick of watching it. Everybody in it is absolutely amazing. But I just love, I love the whole idea that, you know, Barton Fink, He's trying to make a theater for the common man. And so, you know, there's... Oh, talk about okay. Of course, you Yeah, because there's me. I talk about class all the time, and the fact is that he is an arsehole. He is an arsehole, <laughs> you know? He is a... You know, John Goodman steals the show as Madman Monk. <laughs> it's one of the greatest... It's one of the... You know, he's an insurance salesman, and he's other things too. I don't want to spoil it, but seriously, Barton Fink is one of the best... It's, I think it's the best Coen Brothers film. There's a good chance it's the best Coen Brothers film. All right. That, no, it's a great selection. And, and I had to think about it for a second because I only saw it the one time in theaters. We had to go to a specialty theater in Seattle. I was in high school. And I went with my art house friend because he was the only one who wanted to see that film with me. <laughs> Took like three buses, got there. It was fine. It was great. Uh, all right. So Barton Fake and my next one. Let's take this one off the board too, because I think, yeah, let's do um, Dead Poet Society because they do put on a play in that, don't they? Dead Poet Society. I don't remember much about it. I saw it way back when, but they, yeah, yeah, he's teaching them like you know Keats and yeah. There's a play that goes on in the middle of it somewhere. I don't remember much about it, but there's a play in there, and Robin Williams won. I think he won the Oscar for this. Uh, or, he or, did not. No, no, he, he didn't. Did not. He, did. he was nominated, and then like a year or two, then like five years later, when um, uh, what's Goodwill Hunting? He won. He won yeah. for Goodwill Hunting. They, they thought that was like his makeup Oscar. They thought he should have won it for this. That's right. I, you know, I need to watch this one again. Oh because man, because it's a young Josh Charles. This, this is a coming age film, and look at all the young talent and yeah. all Ethan that. Hawk, yeah. Robert Sean Leonard, Josh Charles. Some nobody their names and then Watson. Yeah, yeah. Some some real some real talent. And I think isn't Matt Damon in this one too? I mean, like everyone got into this damn film. Everyone became somebody out of this damn film. It's pretty remarkable. Yeah, so that's a good call. Good. I need to watch it again. Um, yeah, me too. Because uh, there's a lot of universal stuff in this. You know, seize the day, carpe diem, all that kind of. You know, and kind of we need that. You know, like like. Although boarding school kids, not not middle class. <laughs> no, but that's what I mean. It's a very good film with really good writing, so I'm I'm okay with it. Again, I only get drawn to it when there are other flaws. Right. 
You know what I mean? When there's like other things, other flaws, but um, no, very good film. Good call. All right, so what, what's your what's your your final film? What you got? So, uh, do you know? I'm gonna go with right. I'm gonna. Go, I had another one in the back of my head, which I've forgotten. But I'm gonna go with with Neil and I. With with you and I. With Neil and Nail. I. Okay, with Neil and I. All right. No, it's that. one word. Oh, with, with Neil and I. Oh, okay. Now you need to see this film. Okay. So the reason I'm going to tell you you need to see this film is I would put it in the top five British films of the last that came out in 1987. So in the last 40 years, top five British films. Okay. What, what makes that, it a top five British film, Marty? Pardon? What makes it a top five British film? Tell us. So I'll give you the premise. Those two people are actors. They know each other clearly from like drama school or something like that. Okay. Uh, the Withnail character on the left hand side, no, sorry, Withnail is on the right hand side, played by Richard D. Grant, and he is upper class. He is really upper class, yeah? Okay. The I character, uh, played by Paul McGann, is much more sort of a working class, ordinary guy, okay? Sure. And it's set in the end of the 1960s into the turn of the 70s, so around about 1969, 1970, and they are out-of-work actors who can't get any, struggling to get auditions. They're completely broke, and um, they're like, you know, they're drinking lighter fluid. <laughs> they're struggling. They're struggling, okay? Yeah. And uh, the guy on the right, with Nail, decides that desperate measures call for, you know, desperate actions, and they go and visit his Richard uncle e. Monty. Richard E. Grant. They go and visit Uncle Monty, and they get his keys to a cottage in the countryside where they are going to have a little weekend away. You know, like just get away from the city, get away from London, and uh, just chill out for a while. Okay. Um, uncle Monty has takes a shine to uh, the eye character, and so he shows up uh, on uninvited and unwanted because he you know and let's be honest paul mccann is a very beautiful boy and so it's understandable that the you know uncle monty would take a shine to him uh, and it's just it's just one of those films that it's so much more than the sum of its parts every scene is perfect the acting is perfect it's full of moments that you just you know you just want to go back and watch again is it in Sorry? Is it in black and white? No, it's in color. It's in okay. color. Okay, just checking. These these all these stills on IMDb for those who are listening. Yeah. So you can oh, go, yeah. you can go to YouTube and type in with Nail and I final scene. And it's the with Nail character doing a monologue from Hamlet. And oh. he's doing it. We used to go for walks there. You can go for walks in uh, Regent's Park, and where Regent's Park backs into the British Zoo. And you actually get to see the, you can actually still walk past this little bit. And uh, in, at the end, it's absolutely chucking it down with rain. And Paul McGann's character, he's got a part in a play. Oh. Yeah, he gets a part. And, and it, so it's really a love story between the two men. You know, it's one of those, that just, you know, you realize just that there's a really strange bond between them that's really quite beautiful. And at the end, uh, the Withnell character goes for a walk in the pishing rain and he passes the wolves who are in the zoo and uh, he recites the um, 
the speech from Hamlet where he says, I could find myself imprisoned in a nutshell and consider myself a king of infinite space, but I have bad dreams. Uh, all this stale promontory, the earth and all the rest of it. Man delights me not, no, not woman neither. And it is the most amazing uh, Hamlet speech I've ever seen. I mean, he really nails the Hamlet, yeah? And so that's what kind of gives us a little bit of sort of... Uh, a beautiful bit of pathos at the end is that even though the, the Withnail character is a fucking arse, and he is, he's an arsehole. He really is. He's, he's an arse, right? He's selfish. He's all these things. He is a man that would actually be able to play a fucking great Hamlet. Because you got to kind of be a bit of a dick to play Hamlet. <laughs> no, I have to be a dick. But he's just got it. No, look, whatever Hamlet has, Hamlet is a very hard part to play. Oh, hell you, yeah. You've got to have it. You've just got to have a lot of things for nothing. And he's got that for nothing. You know, there's just certain things that um, Richard E. Grant as an actor and the character Withnail has as an actor that would make him perfect for Hamlet. And trust me, I've seen a few Hamlets and they've almost all been terrible. Fun fact, my uh, my audition, one of my audition scenes for grad school, uh, for acting school was uh, Hamlet. Not the to be or not to be, it was like a different speech. So, yeah. I don't remember it though. <laughs> But yeah, watch with Neil and I. It is a classic. I saw it at the cinema a few years ago for the first time in a while, and it had me in bits. I mean, it is literally a laugh out loud funny film. You know, the, and the more oh, you see comedy. it, oh, okay. All this entire time it seemed like this weird drama. So it's a comedy. Just cause it's a comedy. Look, no, see if you're giving a no, so right, if you're giving a setup. If see if you're giving a fucking setup to a movie, okay. and that movie sounds like pretty sad. If everybody's doing their work properly, including the person describing the film, it should right. be a comedy. Comedy, right. look, comedy is not about happiness. Comedy is about sadness. No, people <laughs> laugh at that. You, you, you cannot have comedy without sadness. This comedy is, is not about a really happy couple who are really in love, who go on a really cool holiday, and on the way back, buy some really nice presents and everybody loves their presents and everybody loves the family and they live happily. That's not comedy, mate. Comedy is when everything goes wrong. Okay. No, that, that's true. Fair There's enough. something about Mary. What's the most famous scene in There's Something About Mary? Dude gets his bits and bobs caught up in a zipper and the, the tagline at the end is, we've got a bleeder. <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, yeah, you made your point. You're a good point, Marty. Good point. And I'm, I'm, bringing in, I'm bringing this segment in for landing with my last one, which and I'm going with the most obvious choice, which I'm surprised stayed on the board this long, which is, of course, the producers. I mean, oh, good. Yeah, based off the stage play, you know, Nathan Lane, uh, Matthew Broderick. Basically, uh, they're trying to put up, you know, the world's worst play. <laughs> Because somehow they think they can get rich by putting up the world's worst play, and to their amazement, it turns out to be good. If I do recall the the plot correctly, so the producers, yeah, you know, I think it was nominated for a bunch of Oscars as well. That's uh, the remake. The original is by far the best. Well, uh, well that's I meant the remake. I I, I saw the, re the remake came in my lifetime. The original I think was 1967. So I, I have not seen the, the the original. Oh yeah, no, you need to see the re you need to see the original. Okay. It's Mel Brooks. It's Mel Brooks. What, in the original? Yeah, Mel Brooks wrote the original. Mel Brooks wrote this one, too. He just yeah. wanted to get another check. <laughs> but yeah, let's, he, he certainly did, didn't he? Good on him. 
you know, <laughs> right? Get paid twice. <laughs> Same work, paid twice. Uh, so this, this original one. Oh, interesting. Gene Wilder. Okay. Yeah. You attention now. You have my attention. All right. Uh, that goes on the list. I've been compiling this list since you've been talking, Marty, of all these movies I need to see. I don't know if I'll ever get to, uh, get to all of them, but I am writing them down. I do have good intentions. <laughs> so, yeah, apologies to the audience. You know, I don't watch TV, but I just watch lots of films. Well, I, I, just, I watch, I watch which, lots of films. Which is great for Cinema Draft podcast, where, you know, ostensibly we are about films. But we are about to now take a quick break with... Our hold on, trying to get this together. There it is. All right, so we're gonna take a quick break to explain to people who are new to the show how the draft stream game works. Which you know, there are some movies that we do stream, Marty. So you know that we we do talk you know some movies sometimes, but we're basically gonna tell people how the draft stream game works, how you can get involved, and we will be back right after this. Movie theaters are on hiatus, but we here at Cinema Draft are not. DraftStream is the streaming content version of the Cinema Draft game you know and love. Just like with Cinema Draft, you have a $100,000 salary cap for a 10-actor call sheet. No more, no less. But in this one, you have to have at least one of three types of actors for your 10-actor call sheet. Headliner, co-star, and day player. Scoring is based on a weighted average of Rotten Tomatoes and Metacritic scores plus audience and user scores. Headliners get a 40% bonus while co-stars receive a 20% bonus over day player points. There's a weekly minimum $50 prize pool shared by the top two non-Cinema Draft employee call sheets. Or you can go low. Cinema Draft offers a minimum $10 lowball bonus to the lowest scoring call sheet of the week. To qualify, your call sheet must spend at least $75,000 of your budget, use at least one actor from three separate titles in the talent pool, and, of course, roster at least one headliner, co-star, and day player to your 10-actor call sheet. The game runs from Thursday evening to Monday afternoon with daily updates on Saturday and Sunday before final scoring after Monday, 12 p.m. Pacific time. Currently, we are alpha testing DraftStream in a rudimentary spreadsheet-based format while we work on adapting it for digital play. Tweaks happen almost weekly due to player feedback. We really need the data, so please help us out and play the game. A link to the most current talent pool is included in the podcast description. Please review the rules tab and submit your call sheet by Thursday, 6 p.m. Pacific time. Thanks again for your help and good luck. We're back. All right. So last week's quarantine movie of the week was, and let me share my screen, delightful little film, pretty much fiction at this entirely fiction at this point it was the american president i enjoy this film immensely it is i mean sorkin has done a lot of great stuff this is probably early peak sorkin sorkin has several peaks i think the social network it was just genius i think this also this isn't this is so more like it doesn't do anything kind of groundbreaking but it really is like 
kind of cinematic political comfort food. Michael Douglas plays an American president. You know, he's a widower and he you know, falls for environmental lobbyists during election year. Back, it came out in 1995, four years before we saw Martin Sheen, who plays his his chief of staff in this movie, become, you know, of course, historically West Wing's Josiah Bartlett, probably the best fictional president we've ever had. So yeah, this, is a, this was a great movie. We got, got some good response to it. Thank you for your tweets, everyone. This, oh, and, and real quick, Marty, do you have any thoughts on the American president? I've never seen it. Oh, now, now you write that one down, Marty. It will make. Is it good? Is it really good? It's, it's, it's so delightful. It's very. Sad. All right. Okay. I mean, I mean, if you're especially for how jaded we are with politics in general, especially over the last you know twenty thirty years, this movie is. I mean, it's. It's not even so much like an anachronism. It's just it's a, it's pure fiction. It's a fable. But even back then, there was still more of a pre-social media and pre you know honestly pre Gingrich really getting his his hooks into the political discourse in, in this country. It really did kind of harken back to a time where a scandal would be like I don't know you know some lobbyist got cheating on his taxes or something. I don't know. So it's just very it's a very different you know mindset. You kind of might maybe roll your eyes at the idealism of it all, but that's kind of what makes it great. You know, it kind of harkens back to a time when, you know, people really did take these jobs for a good public service civic reason. So I, it was what I watched, what I was going, what I went to during our lengthy election, you know, counting state, you know, our election week. We had our election day, but it ended up being stretched out into election week. So I sat the draft mom down to watch. She'd never seen it. And it was delightful. It was definitely a nice reprieve from our cynical politics of today. Nice. Yeah, and so the so the movie I'm doing for the quarantine movie of the week this week, and call me old softy, but it's me before you. Are you familiar with this movie, Marty? No. Ah, oh, so delightful. This movie looks like it's romantic. And you don't do romantic. You don't, you don't do. Uh, I, 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 I like my rom. <laughs> I like a rom com. No, I like rom, and I like com. But together. <laughs> no, 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 but just it's gotta be done so well. You know, Rom and Com. Why do they go together? Uh, because, they? Be, be, because maybe the, just like you said with with uh, only from tragedy comes great comedy, being in love or, or striving for love is innately a tragic art. And I say this as someone who's been single for the last six years. I know from where I speak, going for love sucks, it's hard. It's it's difficult, so why not make fun of it? Why not? This actually isn't a rom. It's actually a romantic drama. Uh, basically, uh, Amelia Clark, and this is in the midst of her, you know, giant Game of Thrones run. No one took this movie seriously in America, but jokes on you! It went went around the world to gross two hundred and eight million dollars. Could have been twenty five thirty million to, to shoot two hundred eight million dollars worldwide. I think it only made like forty fifty million in the United States, so kind of flopped here. But it's it was so. So she plays a, a quirky, you know, uh, an in, you know, English caregiver, uh, jo- goes from job to job, whatever, kind of aimless, finds a young, paralyzed, I think he was in finance, whatever, rich guy. And, she's, and he's in a wheelchair. He's very acerbic, very surly. She's super optimistic, sunny, bright, totally not Daenerys Targaryen. And, you know, he's very, you know, pissed off, angry at the world. You know, he's in a, he's in a wheelchair. He's not feeling great about it. And they both kind of just fall for each other because opposite track, the whole thing. But it's done so well. I, I Apparently, it's based off of like a best-selling book. She's very kind of quirky and a mess. He's all kind of put together and 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 uh, mean and yeah, and he's very very rich. So you definitely probably won't enjoy those parts. But it's 
It's very charming, and I swear to God, I cried. I teared up in the theater. I can count on one hand how many times I've actually cried in the theater. That one just dragged it out of me. It's excellent, Marty. It's excellent. She's so good in it, too. Wow. Uh, Amelia Clark. Yeah, I, I didn't think she had it in her, honestly. I also didn't think she had it in her, and she's great. Sam Claflin, too. I mean, you know, quiet, quietly great. I mean, I didn't expect it to win any awards because it definitely flew under the radar in this country, but she was so good in it. After that, I'm like, you know what? I'll watch her just about anything. To wit, I have not yet watched Last Christmas because that looks uh, god-awful, but I need to watch it just for Amelia Clark because I'm sure she probably gives it her all. <laughs> oh, so and, and she's gorgeous, too. That didn't hurt either. All right, anyways, Amelia Clark, Sam Claflin, Me Before You. That is your quarantine movie of the week. Tweet me at Play Cinema Draft, your tweet length reviews, or hit us up on Facebook, which is facebook.com slash cinema draft. All right, so here's a section, here's a segment that you may not have much to say about Marty, so bear with me. We are okay. doing our draft stream update, and basically. I totally failed. Ninth place overall. The Usual Suspects, Gamble 24x7, the all-time cinema draft and draft stream money winner to date. Won again, or actually he tied with Jaybird, uh, our former cinema draft alpha test uh, all-time uh, money winner. But he tied with Jaybird, but due to our tiebreaker of the Metacritic score, Jaybird did prevail. He did it behind a... Optimal stack that is two headliners, one co-star, one day player. A Valley of Tears, which I am now intensely interested in watching. Uh, looks like about the Six Day War or the Yom Kippur War. Something I know very little about, so I am I'm intrigued. I like historical fiction, historical dramas, so I'm all over that. He did it with the optimal stack of Valley of Tears. Uh, Sophia Loren's comeback film, The Life Ahead on Netflix, as well as, and then now we get back to the kind of the, the dad core. Uh, the Dad Core Return film, uh, Return series, Chicago Fire in its ninth season. Have not seen one minute of the one Chicago show, Chicago Med, Chicago Fire, Chicago PD. You want to talk about someone getting their checks, Marty? Dick Wolf has got the greatest scam running over here in the states. He's he's pioneered a, a series of Law and Order, like five different Law and Orders. Law and Order is in its. I get, or I, it ran for like 20 some seven seasons, something like that. Law and Order Special Victims Unit, a spinoff of Law and Order, just had its season 22 debut. Ice T, well, I follow Ice T, so um, I know that Ice T, he's always talking about it, you know, can't believe it. Went in there just to do a few episodes. 20 years later or whatever, still banking the checks. So you can't complain. Yeah, check in entertainment, my boy. It's steady. Show. And then, so Dick Wolf did the, 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 the Law and Orders. And then he created a, a set of other shows, uh, also on NBC, same network over here, On a, owns a totally different night where it's Chicago Fire, Chicago, no, it started off with Chicago Med, like doctors in Chicago. Then he branched out to Chicago Fire. And then he branched out to Chicago PD. So he's got Was all Chicago the Hope? Was Chicago Hope something different? Chicago, you know what? I think now that failed because that came on when ER was doing well. But Chicago Hope, I thought that was David E. Kelly, wasn't it? And that's kind of flopped, which is weird because David E. Kelly, you know, I'm not sure if you're familiar with his work. That's Ali McBeal. Yeah, that was David E. Kelly. So no, different guy. Um, uh, that was that was when they were trying to catch the heat of uh, ER. Or actually, no, actually, I'm sorry. They debuted at the same time, ER and Chicago Hope. One lived. One died. I think we know which one lived and which one didn't. 
the one, the one that had George Clooney live. Let's put it that way. Uh, yeah, so no, that that's the guy. But you know, he's got Chicago and Wednesdays on NBC unlocked with with the with the one Chicago show as they call them. Uh, so that guy, yeah, he's probably got to be close to two billion dollars because that's just money printing forever. Uh, Auntie Donna's big old house of fun. I did not see coming. Look at how cheap it was. Eighty seven hundred got you one hundred and sixty three points. So well done, G twenty four, the homie, winning yet another cinema draft. Or another draft stream contest with Jaybird, who had the exact same call sheet, but due to the tiebreaker, got second place money. Fifty dollars to first, twenty-five to second, ten dollar, another ten dollars to G twenty-four. The homie got it, came in third, fifteen oh five. This was an historic week in draft stream. This average score is just bananas. Easily our highest average score of all time, nearly ten points above the average. And at the time that this game was running, the average was at was an eighty-six point six eight. So nearly 10 points over the average. It was bonkers. Looks like everyone is coming home to the shows they know and love. All these season premieres coming back. Grays, The Crown. People just want to stay locked down, you know, safe, germ-free, watching what they like. So will we see more of that this week? Well, let's take a look at this week's talent pool. And 25 hot ones. Uh, everything from the Fresh Prince reunion. The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Are you familiar with the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, Mark? Oh, come on. I'm just, hey, you don't watch TV? I'm just checking. You're over there in Scotland. I'm just checking. Come on. I mean, look, yeah, yeah. I know about The Fresh Prince uh, of Belair. I didn't watch it religiously when it was on. But it's one of those shows, it, it, it's on a lot. You get what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. It's and on the, a lot. And it's on HBO Max in perpetuity now. Uh, the yeah. Time, the, the Time Warner companies. And they're running this out, I think, what's today? 17th? I think it's coming out on uh, Thursday uh, the, on HBO Max. So I'm, I'm tuned in, of course. What will be interesting to see is if it gets enough scores. These type of, these type of documentary uh, reunion special type shows aren't consistently covered. So we'll see if that'll get all, five, all four scores enough to get you the points you need. Uh, so also our most uh, this is going to be a week where everyone kind of gets what they want because we are only doing oh, hold on, undo that because we're because salary wise our most expensive title is the film run Sarah Paulson I don't know much about it it's on it's coming out on Hulu I think Thursday uh, but already as you can see it's already got a seven point eight from some of the people who've been exposed to it maybe it made the festival circuit I'm not sure. But it looks like it is kind of horror thriller. So me personally, I'm not going to watch it, but it's already off to a good start. So you might want this on your call sheet. I hate Susie. Billy Piper. Love her. Love her. She's so good. She finally gets another star vehicle. Looks like a former a, a, a female celebrity who has her whole life upended when her phone is hacked. And oh, okay, so she gets so she gets uh, so she gets phone hacked, and her pictures are out. So basically, her whole wholesome image goes to pop. Perfect. I'm in already, and that is coming out on what's that coming out on? That is oh, that's last week's. That's on HBO Max. Two for two HBO Max. I love it. And his Dark Material season two returns. I don't see any mention of James McAvoy, so maybe he's not in this season. But Ruth Wilson, adore her. Daphne Keene coming back. With more fancy goodness, I watched. I couldn't actually get out of the pilot. wasn't for me. Are you familiar with his Dark Materials that series, Marty? No. All right, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> Neither am I. But people apparently adore this this series, this adventure series, young adult series. So 
I'm probably going to have some exposure to this on my call sheet. Uh, as far as value goes, I'm curious about Veneno. I don't know much about it, but another HBO Max show. HBO Max is kind of racking up the hits right now. Uh, about a, uh, oh, biographical story. I like those. Trans about a transgender icon and TV personality and those who surrounded her. Interesting. I'm not, you obviously probably didn't see any of the podcasts of this weekend, but I fell in deep, deep love with a show called Trans, or not a movie called Transhood. It also was on HBO, and I watched it on my HBO Max platform. And this just brought me to tears, Marty. I was tearing, I teared up four times in the first 20 minutes because the way, I mean, they, they take, they follow three different, I think it's three different families in, no, four, four families in, Kansas City, Missouri, so the heartland of America, right? So it's not like they went to San Francisco or some, you know, or Seattle or anything. They went to Kansas City, Missouri, Midwestern, conservative, traditional values, whatever. And they followed these kids from the ages of four, seven, 12, and 15 as they transition into, you know, into uh, accepting being, you know, transgender. You got this one, uh, you have a, a young uh, girl who is transitioning into being a boy, but he already has a boy. He already he already has a girlfriend who doesn't know, and then it, and it's just and so once also kind of gets outed. It's I mean, there's a lot of human drama if you're into that type of thing. But I was tearing up, just damn, you're ready to ball my eyes out. How hard the, their struggles were and how much these parents loved their kids. Oh my god, I just, I couldn't take it. I couldn't take it, Marty. It was so it was it was really wow. real. It was it was big. I like a good do I like a good documentary. Sometimes you know you you need a good documentary in your life. And this one is definitely going to make you want to cry. It's how and, and there there's an unexpected parental heel turn in the third act, which I did not see coming. Oh man, that was wild. So uh, I it, it has everything. It really does have it all. You see, I gave it a ten. Uh, nice. Five point five because America sucks and we politicize everything. So, but I recommend Transit absolutely. Um, so yeah, so Vanino, uh, I think I'm. I think this is in my wheelhouse. I think I'll have to check it out. I'm not sure how I might do score wise, but um, I ten thousand. It's some good value there if you think it's going to score over a hundred points. And then the personal history of David Copperfield. I've been kind of sitting on this one for a while. I'm glad to see it's finally out to be streamed. Uh, I love Dev Patel. I think he's very charismatic. Um, who else is in this one? She looks familiar. Oh, yeah, Tilda Swinton. She's in everything. Ben Wisha. <laughs> that haircut killing me. Uh, two seconds. That is my guest. I'm going to just get the front door, okay? Okay, fair enough. And so the, so I'll continue with the breakdown yeah. real quick. Uh, All Rise in its second season. And this is also kind of, you know, dad core CBS dramas. You know, nothing too, nothing too flashy or spicy. But I enjoy it. Uh, a young judge who used to be a district attorney is on the bench and she kind of has to go up against her friends from the DA's office and also administer justice in a humane way. And one thing I like about All Rise is that uh, they did a pandemic episode like way back in like the spring where they filmed it, you know, socially distanced and everything. And I thought they did a really good job of, of using the pandemic in, in our in quarantine lockdown situation in a dramatically satisfying way. So All, All Rise is the prototypical third screen, third monitor film. It's not to, you know, a third, third monitor series. It's not something you have to pay a ton of attention to, but it's still heartwarming nonetheless. All right. 
and oh, and that's last week's. So those are the ones I'm keeping my eye on. Maybe what might be slightly mispriced is Trolls, Trolls Topia. Nobody asked for this, but <sighs> it's back. So you know, this might I might misprice it only because I think it's kind of annoying they're back so soon with Trolls, Trolls Topia. But this one could be some salary relief right here. So make sure you all check that out. And everybody who is so inclined, make sure you get your call sheets into me by 6 p.m. Pacific time Thursday. This Thursday. Uh, maximum three call sheets per player, and you have a chance to be to win part of the hundred dollar prize pool. Wee! All right, so we're bringing this in for a landing. Thanks, Marty, for hanging in there and and you know battling through the ailments, battling through my classism, battling through uh, through my love of the crown, and also you know just being a great guest as always. Cheers to you. Let's clap it up for Marty. I've got two recommendations. Oh, okay. Yeah, so this is the time where I say go ahead and plug your ish. So go ahead and plug some ish, Marty. So it's there's a woman called Brianna Joy Gray. Meet follower on Twitter. Oh, she's she's an interesting follow. She's an interesting you know who I'm on about, right? Okay, good. I, I, actually, I'm not sure if I follow her because she's she's a little even too left for me. But I, I oh come her. on, she's not. No, I, well, not to get well, we'll do a quick steer. She, she I, I know she she's a really big Bernie person. She's very, but she's also kind of toxic as far as the way she attacks other left people. Now I'm very much very lefty as well, but also there's sometimes where it's like. So there's some stuff that I think you should attack some th things. I don't think you should. I like where her head's at, though, generally. I think she's... Yeah, no, no, I, I get you. Because, I, I, I mean, she was the one that was in charge of Bernie Sanders' campaign. So I think she kind of plays... I know what you're talking... There is a lot of people on the left that go all out and, uh, you know... But I think she... Because I watched her on the um, Noam Chomsky. She interviewed Noam Chomsky. Oh. And, and like, you know, Noam Chomsky's somebody that said an awful lot of, like, Fairly challenging things over the years. Yeah, he's mostly and, um, so. <laughs> and she was kind of trying to get him to, to say, you know, she was asking him about certain things to do with, you know, let's assume we're all going to vote Joe Biden, but can we talk a little bit more about, you know, other things? Yeah. And, and and he kept on coming back to the same answer, which was very unknown Chomsky, but, you know, he's, he's 90 years old. And she kind of handled it with, you know, what I would have been like, I would have been effing and seeing, I would have been known. Get you know, I understand Noam, that you've been like the top of your game for all these years, but you're losing your fastball, you're talking pish, you know. And she never did any of that, and so I quite like her. And also, I just wanted to get your thoughts, which I'm sure you like. Um, what's his name, Chappelle's? Uh, oh, monologue. live monologue, yeah, it was okay, it had its moments. Okay, I, I really liked her. No, no, I mean, I've, I mean, think about. The, the problem with, with well, there's no real problem with Chappelle. Chappelle is everyone thinks he's a genius. He pretty much is. His his stuff is pretty good. I and this and for those who are uh, I'm sharing screen sharing now. Uh, Brianna, yeah, the Brianna, podcast is pretty good. Yeah, Brianna Gray Joy. I was gonna Brianna Joy Gray. BG, yeah, BG BG BJG. Ooh, say that five times fast. BJGs. Yeah, at Bree Bree Joy. B R I E B R I E Joy. If you're inclined to follow her. No, I thought it was okay. I just, I mean, it, it had its moments. Think about about Chappelle as he's gotten older. There's a, there's an element, a bit of a a get off my lawn type quality to his stuff. And and, <laughs> and, and you know, I'm serious. And, and he's very much, very much like you know, and a lot of comedians feel unfairly attacked uh, because you know things that they couldn't say before. They, they, they could say before they can't say now. And some people have a hard time adjusting. I, I see a, a little bit of that in his work, but he always does have some insightful 
of uh, political commentary when he does do his thing. And I thought he had some good stuff there. I, I don't think it was his best stuff by far. So no, I, no, no, no. I, would, I, I thought it was timely. Yeah, yeah. I, honestly, I think I think the when he was when he was last on Saturday Night Live, the weekend after Trump got elected, I thought that shit was brilliant. That monologue was brilliant. That was incredible. So if you want to see want to see a good you know uh, political set of Dave Chappelle, go watch his 2016 shortly after uh, appearance on Saturday Night Live when he did that monologue. The entire country needed his monologue, and that was a really that was a really good one at that time. Nice. Good. All right. Well, you've got a guest. We've talked for hours. Always a good time. Yay, Scotland. Yay. Looking forward to the fucking cage. Keep in his fucking cage. Keep America in his fucking cage. No, I love America. You know I love America. You know I love America. And shout out to your mother. Shout out to your mother. Yes. All right. Shout out to Scotland. Love you, Scotland. Be there in a couple years. Great. Thanks for thank everyone for watching. Thanks everyone for playing. And we will see you guys next week with another great guest and another great top five. Thanks, everybody. All right, dude. Where can you find Cinema Draft? We are on Twitter at Play Cinema Draft, Facebook Cinema Draft, Instagram at Play Cinema Draft, Medium at Cinema Draft. That is our corporate blog. We're even on Pinterest, Cinema Draft. Also subscribe to this podcast at iTunes, Google Music, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts from. And finally, please visit us at cinemadraft.co and sign up for an invite to the relaunch. We will always have games where you can sign up, play for free, and win real money. Cinema Draft is a registered mark of Cinema Draft LLC. Both the Cinema Draft game and the CD3D decentralized app token are for entertainment purposes only.